the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Tom Whipple, who's science editor of The Times, and who, away from this busy day job, has written a new book called The Battle of the Beams, The Secret Science of Radar, that turned the tide of the Second World War. Tom, welcome. Hello. Now, obviously, it's quite a statement that this battle of radar turned the tide of the Second World War. Can you tell me how important really was radar and the technological arms race of radar. And why is that aspect of the Second World War, if it is as important as your subtitle says, so little known? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I think we all know that subtitles don't don't wholly carry the nuance (laughs) of a book. And uh, one of the ways in which it doesn't carry the nuance is it's so much more than radar. It is about radio waves in general. And I was interested in this to an extent because my grandparents met whilst being researchers in, as we were told as children, in radar. And I think they probably, we were told that as children, because saying that they got to know each other working on radio sounds like they were doing just sort of light entertainment for radio (laughs) too, Uh, whereas in fact they were both mathematicians. The radio radio spectrum was this really new thing. Between the wars, there was this idea, we'd just discovered this comparatively, that there's this tiny sliver of light that we can see, And outside of this, there's this whole world of X-rays and microwaves and radio waves and all sorts of things. And between the wars, there was really this idea that within this, there would be a superweapon, something that would win the war for whoever found it first. And we we were absolutely certain that it was, was going to be a death ray. And there were all sorts of work on death rays. There was a guy called uh, Harry Grindle Matthews. He wrote an article in, uh, I love it, maybe as a journalist I love it, because an article in Popular Radio Magazine in 1924 in which he he talks about how he's killed a mouse with his death ray. And the best thing about it is it's not even puffed on the front. This guy, you know, death rays were so common at the time that they, they went for something about making a two-tube reflex re- receiver and you had, to, you had to dip really far into the magazine to discover that they had a literal death ray. Um, Might be bigger in the mouse press. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an extraordinary thing and quite an extraordinary article because he also claims to have blown up, you know, things effectively to, to have caused something that could blow up bombs in aeroplanes. Um, it was all nonsense, of course, but not enough nonsense that the, the British Air Force didn't, they, they created a competition for someone who could raise the temperature of a sheep sufficiently to kill it. And eventually, when all, all of Britain's sheep remained resolutely unboiled, um, they went to this guy called Robert Watson Watt and said to him, look, he, he, was, he was a big radio scientist, so saying, why, why are we not destroying our sheep? And he said, this is absurd. Um, you know, if you sort of go up to Crystal Palace television mast, you don't see scorched grass. Um, but he said, maybe if you turned your attention to other uses we might get some more useful answers. Effectively, just sort of ask me a sensible question and you'll get a sensible answer. And he's now known as the father of radar. 
And so that's sort of the origin story of Ray Darling. We went into the Second World War with this idea of, of Britain being the, the country that had radar and our sort of pluck and ingenuity and cunning had got there ahead of, of Johnny Foreigner. And it was obviously total nonsense. Um, but from then, the radio waves in general became this area of secret war where to have air supremacy, you needed airwave supremacy. And that included using them to navigate. Um, the title of my book is The Battle of the Beams, and it's about these beams that the Germans used effectively to be the first precision navigation equipment. Um, but it's also about all of the technology to block it and divert it and confound it and generally get in each other's way so that by the end, the airwaves were this this vast cacophony of measures and countermeasures and counter-countermeasures. Yes, now we should start for slow learners, um, i.e. me. Did you just briefly explain, you said radio waves are on the electromagnetic spectrum there. Can you just give us a kind of 30-second breakdown on what, what the hell radar and radio waves actually are? Yeah, no, of course. So we have light, we know what light is, and we can see the spectrum, and light is a form of electromagnetic radiation. And if you go below it, then you get all sorts of things. You know, you get things like x-rays, which are the things that can see through see through bones and see through your hands and things like this. Uh, and in fact, Röntgen, the discoverer of them, when he discovered this, he tried them out on his wife's hand and, and she said, I have seen my death when she saw the outline of her flesh. But if you get longer, the wavelengths, these are waves going through space. I mean, obviously, you know, you can get into quantum mechanics and there are all sorts of other things, but for our purposes, they're waves. And when you get longer, you get different properties. Um, you get infrared, which, of course, is, you know, special forces soldiers using to see heat. And you get microwaves, which we use for microwave ovens, but that's just a name for a particular chunk of the spectrum. And then you get radio waves. And the great thing about radio waves is they pass almost unimpeded through the atmosphere. And you can't use them to, to raise the temperature of sheep. But if they hit an object, particularly a metal object, they'll bounce off it. And so radar is just a means of detecting those bounces. You, you send out pulses of radio, you hear where the pulses come back and how long it takes, and you can judge distance and where the object is and what it's up to. Now, as your book opens, it's, you know, we're more concerned, if you like, with air defences, if I'm getting this right. We were on the back foot in the war. There wasn't really much much left for the Germans to invade except us. And we were starting, as you say, to, we, we thought we had these this radar that nobody else had. Was radar something that was instantly lit on? I mean, you, as you describe it, there was some kind of extraordinarily sort of really wacky things tried. Yeah, we knew that... So Baldwin gave this speech saying the bomber will always get through. And this sort of electrified and terrified the world, the idea that there was nothing to stop these planes coming through. And so the work began on different ways of ensuring the bomber will not always get through. And obviously, to stop the bomber from getting through, you have to spot it. And if you would come to someone in the mid-30s and said, how are we going to spot the bomber? They could have pointed to all sorts of schemes. Um, there was... Uh, silhouette, which was this idea that you would light up the clouds with searchlights and then the night fighters would circle high up and when they saw the silhouette of a bomber passing over the clouds, they would swoop down like sharks and sort of take it out. Um, there was a scheme 
that was designed to listen out for them. I mean, you can still see these. There are these polished concrete sort of, they look like radar dishes, but they were there for hearing sound. And they're still there in Kent. These were tried out and there were several things that, that went badly wrong in the, in the tests. One is that sound travels at, you know, about 700 miles an hour as opposed to the speed of light. And so if you're trying to detect something going at 300 miles an hour, you really don't have much warning. Uh, the second thing is perhaps more fundamentally that some milkman on his rounds interfered with them sufficiently that they, that they just thought this is, this is not feasible, just sort of whistling as he went past. So, yeah, radar was by no means obvious, but it became obvious to everyone. And actually, as we now know, there were six or seven different countries who had come up with this idea. And it was only by the willfully chauvinistic belief in our own superiority that we ignored the massive, massive evidence, which included at one point a drunk German officer just saying, you know, half hour, that radio deflection technique for finding the range of things that you have and we also have, how is it going? They had to ignore that to still believe that only Britain had these eyes in the sky. Well, chauvinism and self-belief is also part of the story of how how this war was won in your in your account of it on a, on an individual level because your hero in this book is character RV Jones and it's absolutely extraordinary i mean he was like a one man band wasn't he hey he was he the thing he really and this might sort of scientific readers might might know there's a guy richard feynman a physicist who's very famous for being very flamboyant and arrogant and extremely arrogant. A little arrogant. bit gropey. Yeah, a little bit gropey. And I don't think there was any gropiness to uh, to uh, to Jones that I've come across. Um, but there was certainly the same level of charisma and arrogance. This was not a Turing sort of figure. This was not some sort of stereotypical scientist who's a bit awkward, only looks at his feet and, and you know, slightly scared of human contact. He absolutely, you know, had 100% belief in his own abilities. And and the infuriating thing was, obviously, he was correct. One of the great joys of writing this is that I've been going through the archives, reading his papers in the National Archives, and these are the, the sage documents of the day. So, so he was a the Assistant Director of Intelligence Science, was his title, although it was rather grandiose because he was a, a department of one. Now, this was his advice to government on things like radar, but he would quote from the classics, he would make biblical allusions. In one case, he um, when he was trying to persuade the government that radar existed, he did so through the medium of creating a play in which the dramatis personae were members of the German high command. And you get these, these marginalia notes from whoever had to read this. Eventually, you know, this is wholly unacceptable. And then later on, he's just like, and the play is terrible. <laughs> well, why must all these characters be ciphers for Jones's views? But of course he was right. So he got away with it. And, and, and yes, I open with him bursting into Downing Street. He'd been... He was always late for work, and he arrived in one day to discover that he had a summons to Downing Street. And, and he was going there because he had a theory that the Germans were using incredibly thin radio beams to effectively paint a cross over their target. And in doing so, they created the precision bombing. The, the, the bombers would fly down one beam, and when the cross beam came across, they would drop their bombs. Uh, and this was a, a revelation. At the time... Britain 
was it was of the view that that this sort of thing was unnecessary because we were a nation of seafarers and we could we could navigate with the sextant and the stars. But the Germans had a slightly different view. But it was a genuine source of controversy whether these actually existed. And so he was taken in, as one of the chief advocates. He was taken into Downing Street, and he arrived in this room full of people twice his age. He was twenty eight, massively more senior than him, and they were all arguing. And eventually, Churchill said. Maybe Jones could help us out. And Jones said, and this is this is marvelous because we have to take his papers with a pinch of salt because he was, you know, he liked a story and he was a showman. But this is we have this from Churchill's point of view as well. And writing off to the wall, Churchill described that moment as like sitting in the parlor while the great detective finally reveals the killer. For twenty minutes or more, he wrote, he spoke in quiet tones, unrolling his chain of circumstantial evidence, the like of which for its convincing fascination, was never surpassed by tales of Sherlock Holmes or Monsieur Lecoq. And, and after that, I mean, it's, it's talking of someone who's, you know, quotable. I mean, Churchill's fabulous. Um, but after that, they sent up two pla- they sent up a plane to listen out for these beams, and they found it, and they found that they crossed over Derby, where the factory that made the Rolls-Royce engines for every hurricane and spitfire was located. It is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, just before we get on to the, the nitty-gritty of these beams and how, how Jones found out about them and how he how he countermanded them, you say, you know, he was a department of one and he was science intelligence. I mean, nowadays, I would think there are probably more scientists doing intelligence than there are any other people. I mean, had it never been thought of that science and technology might have been important to the intelligence services? Well, he was an experiment. They, they, they were seeking if really you needed people who weren't classicists in the intelligence departments. And, and he was their, their sort of trial of this, uh, this intriguing idea that it might be useful to a technical specialist. But you're absolutely right. Look, it, was, it seems astonishing now. He was offered this job and it was effectively counterintelligence. It was about putting yourself in the minds of of the German scientists and thinking, what what are they doing? And he was offered the job as an experiment, and it was just him. And he sort of said, when off the job, you know, a man in that position could lose the war. I'll I'll take it. And it started off in, in, in this lovely bit where his um he writes his monthly summaries in which he sort of describes what he's found out and the, the list of a sort of cornucopia of mad weapons, things like Molotov's bread basket or stupefying gas. And at the end of one of them, he says, you know, it is regretted that we did not produce one last month. Unfortunately, the entire department was occupied in a matter of some urgency, which was the beams and the entire department was him. But he likes being an entire department because... He considered he's this thing, another one of these infuriating documents he sent out wholly unnecessarily in in the official papers where he describes the ideal intelligence department as being like a human with eyes that take in data from here and hands from here, and then a brain that's as, as closely connected to all of those. And ideally, it should be the smallest number of brains with the greatest intelligence. And I, I think he very much viewed that the smallest number of brains with the greatest intelligence was one and him. <laughs> So how did he figure out this first of several ingenious Nazi super weapons, the rather brilliantly named Nicobine? Yes, it is actually, I only know this because I had to do the audiobook and had a moment of panic. It is Kunikabine. Oh, um, Kunikabine. It's one of these things that I'd written down a hundred times and then uh, sitting in the recording chamber, uh, I was like, oh God, I 
I don't know my German. Um, your in a twist. Yes. How did he find it out? There were lots of different ways. This is the thing you come to realise. So they had, you know, Enigma decrypts by this stage. They had human intelligence, in particular from downed enemy soldiers, some of which they would have notebooks, which would one one notebook in particular, which was torn into a hundred pieces and then put back together, contained the location of the radio masts that projected these beams. But the clincher was often listening to the conversations of airmen. We had this remarkably simple and, and extremely effective technique of interrogation where we would take the airmen, downed airmen, and put them in this place we call the Cockfosters cage. It was up in Cockfosters. And they would be very politely asked questions. And they would almost always very politely decline. And that would be it. And they'd go back to their cells. But all their cells were bugged. And so they'd ask the question they want the answer to. And more often than not, they'd go back and say, oh, these English idiots are asking us about X, Y, or Z. And, and this is what I know about X, Y, or Z. Let me tell you more. And they got gramophones that were etching a groove with, with all of this information. And then, uh, yeah, and he put it together. And actually, interested in, he had a um, paper as well from a radio scientist who said, because one of the big questions was, would this work? Because if you think about it, you've got to get these beams to slightly bend around the curvature of the Earth. And he had a paper from a radio scientist that suggested this was indeed possible. As it turned out, after writing this paper and after sending up the planes, the, the guy then recanted and said, no, actually, it's not possible. I don't think they would bend around this much. But luckily, his calculations were wrong. Jones described that as quite a hairy moment when he realised that Winston Churchill, on his word, had sent up planes in 1940 to listen to something that might not be there. But he put it together, and the, I might might briefly try to describe how these works because yeah. there was a precedent. There's this device called a Marintz landing system, which was used to help with landing, particularly in bad weather. And what it did was, it's two beams or it's two radio signals. And if you imagine, so radio waves are light. If you imagine you've got a torch and you you, you shine a torch, it produces a cone. And if I said, follow the cone of the torch, well, you know, after 100 metres, you'd be anywhere in an arc sort of 30 degrees um, or probably even more. But if you've got two torches and you just let those cones graze each other, then you've created something a lot thinner. And this is what they did with the radio beams and with the Lorentz landing system. They had two cones of radio signal. One was dots and one was dashes. And if you heard the dots, the dot, 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 you need to turn right. If you heard the dashes, the dash, 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 you need to turn left. And where they came together, the brilliant thing was the dots filled the holes in the dashes. And so where they came together, you just heard a continuous deep. And so you knew you were on target. And that's how, from this stuff that diverges, they managed to make something extremely thin that could mean that, you know, within theoretically within a few hundred yards of your target, which was absolutely astonishing for back then. But, of course, range comes into that, and this is where the the crosshair, you've got another one of these beams, haven't you, going as close to perpendicular as possible? Yeah, exactly that. So there is another one that you then, so you get on the beam, and then you listen out for this cross beam, and sort of when you hear the dashes, you start to get ready, and then when you hear the continuous note, that's when you open the bombs and bombs away, and hopefully you've hit your target. Now, to do this... You've got these beams, they've got, got some of them on the French coast and some of them right up on the north over around, I mean, where is it? Finland, even. Where is it? The, no, the, top, the, the, the northern the one is up in, it's just on the border of Denmark. 
Um, on the border of Denmark. Yeah. yeah. Does that mean that this was a technology that, being surrounded by the enemy rather than surrounding them geographically, we could not have used? We could not have used it anything like so well. We could have used it to bomb targets in France, but yes, they have both the sort of distance north-south to give the, the resolution and, and the fact that they were like the sort of the jaws of Nazism that were, <laughs> were coming to clump around us. And of course, those were the original locations of the beams, but then when they occupied France, they just moved them closer, which meant that they could reach more of the country and, and do so easily. So yeah, it was, for the start of the war, the Germans had invested a lot more time in these beams for their radio technology, although they had radar as well. And Britain had invested more in radar. And it makes sense. Ours was a defensive war. Theirs was an offensive war. They didn't ever expect that it would be going the other direction. So in terms of having radar, that's a lot less of a consideration for them. Now, once he'd figured out that these beams existed and that they were capable of guiding bombers, which previously you know, were lucky if they dropped something within a couple of miles of the target right on... How did they set about foiling them? I mean, it's an extraordinary kind of passage where you've got a whole bunch of people sticking garden sheds at the top of poles and stealing equipment from hospitals and Christ knows what. I mean, yes, we're... they. Well, so, so the first thing is you've got to extemporise. You've got to do what you can immediately. And initially they thought we just didn't have anything in the right frequency range that was powerful enough to do anything. But then someone remembered these things called diathomy sets, which are used for cauterising wounds in hospitals. And they effectively went in and just nicked them. The justification was, yes, less effective cauterization if you're in hospital, but you're less likely to end up in hospital if we do our job right. And so they, they went and nicked those, and that was the first, and that just put a fuzz up in the air. That basically just meant, meant that it was harder to hear the beams. And then they worked on a more effective one, which was going to send up dashes in the air, so wherever you were, it sounded like you had to turn and they also put up listening posts. So there were poor people. They found ham radio enthusiasts um, and got them to the cause, but they, they put them in sheds on poles, like sort of stylites, where they, they went up, off, often the radar the radar posts, and they, they just literally had the, these sheds, and they'd sit up there listening to see where they... Because as well as to block the beams, you had to know where they were set for that night so that you could be in their path. And also knowing where they're set for means that you know where to put your fighters and where the target is and where to prepare your emergency services. So all around Britain, we had these people at poles listening out for the dots and the dashes of the knickerbine. And once he'd started to thwart the knickerbine and they were no longer dropping their bombs quite so actually, all make hard on its heels, there's another one, isn't there? There is. They were, if you'll, I, mean, I suppose I've done enough national stereotypes of Britons, I could do some national stereotypes of Germans. They were very German and efficient about it. <laughs> they, were, they didn't just do this in singles, they did it in triplicate. And in fact, Jones had expected this because there was an amazing intelligence leak right at the start of the war called the Oslo Report, where a German businessman called Hans Ferdinand Meyer, who hated the Nazis, organised a trip to Oslo before Norway was occupied, went up to his hotel room, and he, he was in the Siemens Research Laboratory, and he just wrote down everything he knew. And he wrote down, amidst this list of all sorts of weapons, he wrote about a range-finding device, which could be used as part of precision bombing. And Jones realised this wasn't the one at all that they'd just thwarted. It was a completely different one. And so 
he he was one of the few people to believe that this this intelligence leak was real as opposed to a plant. He he said that you know here this quote where in in the few quiet moments of the war he would consult it to see what was happening next. But what was happening next was clearly other beams. And the next one to pop up was quite a bit similar enough to Knickerbein that I think we don't need to get into too much into the technical details. It was called Excarate. The big difference was that you could listen out electronically for the signal. So it was a lot harder to jam. And there's this just a awful what if of British history. So through similar means, he had, and a colleague, he now had one colleague, had unraveled how this worked in principle, but they hadn't done so to the full technical specification. They needed to know, you know, how things were set, what frequencies, when, in what way. And there was still an element of guesswork. But we knew a massive raid was coming uh, called Operation New Light Sonata. And it was going to be led by a team of pathfinders using this equipment. So we needed to find it out. One of these crash landed on Chesil Beach. And they, they were flying about. If you know what Chesil Beach looks like, it's this it looks from above like a runway. It's a very straight, long spit of, of dazzling white beach. In the moonlight, it would have looked really inviting. And it was running out of fuel. It landed on it. Of course, it's not at all inviting. There's, there's shingle that's pushed up into massive mounds that would get caught in the wheels. And it crashed. And it crashed badly. And it crashed badly enough that it didn't destroy excavate equipment. But it landed, and, and here, given this is a, a literary podcast, I will, of course, quote Ian McEwan, um, <laughs> who there is this quote from On Chesil Beach, which is, this is how the co- entire course for life can be changed by doing nothing. And that's what happened. It landed on the surf, and the you really wouldn't script this. The army turned up and saw this amazing prize, and they started retrieving it. But the Navy turned up and said, well, it, it's on the surf. This is a Navy job. And so the Navy argued that it was their jurisdiction. The Army argued it was theirs. And whilst this was doing in, you know, the, the, sort of the sea, which is largely unconcerned with inter-service rivalries, decided to keep on doing what the sea does. And the tide came in and it washed over this thing and got into the cockpit. And they were still arguing. And no one had examined this by the night of November the 14th when the Coventry raid happened. And... Jones had gone to bed the night before and he had said, I'll just find the he said it was a most diabolical bit of gambling because if one's wrong, if if he'd set it wrong, perhaps 500 people are dead in the morning. And well, of course, he had guessed at the frequency, hadn't he? Or, or he guesses. had guessed at the, the so there are several things, the, the frequency he had guessed at and as it turned out, he got it right. But within the frequency, it also projected a note, which is a bit like, you know, how Radio 3 has a frequency, but then within it you play opera, which is all sorts of different frequencies. And as it turned out, they got the projected note wrong. So all of the jammers were useless. Now, you know, quite probably they'd have found Coventry anyway, but it nevertheless sits there as this what if, you know, what if the army just got the thing examined and discovered the right settings? I mean, at least the jammers would have worked. And as you say, these things came in threes, the kind of extraordinary things, these first two designs seem to have been relatively advancingly sophisticated versions of the same basic crosshairs idea. What was the third one? Wotan. The third one is Wotan, which is a, a German god with one eye. 
which was the clue that, that Jones used to determine one eye, one beam. I mean, it was actually a, a marvellous piece of motivated reasoning because he already knew the form of the beam but wanted to convince other people. So he concocted this whole thing involving the German mythology, which is, you know, I mean, massively, massively over-concocted and over-analysed. What it was, was a very different sort of technique. It was the planes had a receiver on them that retransmitted a particular radio signal. So they'd be pinged. They'd be pinged by the home station. And in the length of time it took the signal to return to the home station, they could work out how far away they were. And then there was a single beam, a bit like the hand on a clock, that gave the directions. If you imagine the, the range tells you you're somewhere on a circle radius around your home station, and then so long as you're going along the single beam, you once again can define precisely where you were. And so that's, that's what it did. This time they got to be clever. They used the television mast at Alexander Palace to re-radiate exactly the same pinged note. And it was a bit like the feedback when, you know, the best man stands up and starts pacing the stage with the microphone and stands in front of the, the speaker and it, it suddenly screams. And they, they did that, but they did it subtly at first so that this error got introduced more and more and more and the, the doubt was introduced. And then eventually they realised that they'd been using a system that had already been blown. And Jones's idea was to make them realise that the Brits were one step ahead of them um, and the and the resistance was futile, which which may have been the, been the case, but also that the course of the war was turning in all sorts of ways, and we were beginning to get radar in our night fighters, and the uh, Russian campaign was about to begin, and and the war changed, but that was the last beam, and it was defeated basically before it had started. And there's that sense throughout the book that Jones's war was not just a technological but a psychological one. Yes, yeah, very, very much so. He very much felt like he was battling individuals, that he had his opposite numbers, Josef Kamuba, or, you know, maybe in his more sort of fantastical thoughts, you know, Herman Goering himself, and that they were on opposite sides of this war. And it was about, well, it was about anticipating their minds and defeating them. And it really was. It was about sitting there and thinking, um, you know, what would I do in that situation? How would I set up my own radar? Because then he goes on to trying to flummox the German radar and trying to work out how, the, how that works. And also, how would I deceive them? There's a situation later on in the war when, when Britain finally realises that it needs to have proper navigation and that actually when you're going at 300 miles an hour, a sextant isn't that useful. And we design our own beams. And he thinks, well, look, we know from our experience that the Germans will very quickly get wind of these. So how do we prevent them from, not prevent them from doing so, but confuse them in doing so? And what he did was he created an entire hoax involving a beam system that was based entirely on knickerbine because if the world appealed to their vanity, they would love to think that the way Britain came up with a beam would be to use knickerbine. So this beam was created. It existed, it had a physical existence, and they sent back agent reports of people discussing these beams. And uh, there's this one marvellous one where, because of course we captured and turned a whole bunch of German 
agents. And one of them sent back this report where he'd overheard something in, in a restaurant. And it, it's got all these sort of airs of verisimilitude where two of the officers are cross about a colleague who'd received a knighthood. And but then one of them says, as this is going on, he says, and all he's done is copy the German beams and a year late. And then, then, then this agent sends us this report where they use the cutlery and the salt and pepper cellars to some, create a model of how these beams work. And it's all utter nonsense. Um, and after the war, when German generals were being debriefed, they talked about these beams and how they knew what the Brits were doing. They knew about this beam and, and it was all nonsense. And, and so, yes... Uh, and that was something he particularly enjoyed, uh, the, the, the psych psychological games. Well, one of his great opposite numbers, I think you mentioned his name a second ago, this Kamhuber, who was, as you describe it, very pleased to have a Kamhuber line, so he had his own line named after himself. And that was a sort of German coastal radar, wasn't it? Yeah, that was their version of our, we, we called ours Chain Home, and theirs was the Kamhuber line, yeah, and it was it was a bit different. They had they had a series of boxes, and this was again this was slowly uh, slowly unravelled this system. And there was there are so many wonderful human stories. My favourite is a Danish guy called Thomas Snorm, who um, he was he was just cross. He was a pilot in the Danish Air Force, and when the Germans invaded, he ran to his biplane and they'd already disabled it and surrendered. And he was furious he couldn't go in some glorious last gasp against the vastly superior Luftwaffe. So he came up with all sorts of schemes, one of which was to kill Himmler with a bow and arrow, which alas didn't happen. He spent a lot of time trying to shoot moving targets with longbows, but Himmler didn't turn up when he thought he would. So then he spotted this moving radio device and he managed to take a video camera film of it and he thought this would be perfect to get back to the Brits and show them what's going on and he I'm sure that the mechanism he came up with was not the best mechanism to get to uh to get this film to Britain what he decided to do was steal a plane he found a decrepit old hornet moth without wings he had to put on the wings and he took it. The, the farmer let him take it on the condition he pretended if, if he was found, the farmer would deny the knowledge and stay. He was stealing it and flew over midway through over the North Sea. He had to climb out onto the wing to refuel it because it didn't have enough fuel to get there. It's worth saying how absurd this is. You know, the reason he was doing this was because he'd spotted the Germans had a technique for spotting planes and attacking them. So he thought that he would fly over this technique to get to Britain. He was very lucky that Operation Barbarossa had just begun and thus they didn't have anything, any planes to send against him. But then obviously he reached Britain and we scramble aircraft to shoot him down. He managed to not get shot down. He managed to get this film over and this is this, this marvellous thing where MI6 sent it to the post office. To get, to get processed. And they had invented OPSEC yet, hadn't they? <laughs> no, they really hadn't. And he, he could not find them this, and the post office has screwed it up. And so he says, I went mad when I realised what had happened. You stupid bastards, I told them. Do you know how many times I risked my life for those films? They were trying to calm me, but I just kept going, are you intelligence officers? What is intelligent about you? Why did you send it to the fucking post office in the first place? 
which is a wholly reasonable, but they got a couple of frames out of it. And anyway, this was one of the two radar that the Germans used. They used this thing called Freya, which got the distance at the rough location, and then Würzburg, which locked onto the planes and guided the bombers in. So each of these bricks was effectively there to control one night fighter to attack one bomber. And this was crucial information because it meant that the simplest way to at least improve the odds of a bombing force was to send them through en masse. Um, because at the very least, you know, you accept one bomber is going to go down, but if you do it in one brick in the Kamhuba Line's wall, then only one bomber is going to go down. You just sort of overwhelm it and, and fly through and hopefully everyone else makes it. There's another, again, psychology enters into it. The invention of sort of anti-radar device that we now know of as chaff was happening sort of simultaneously and everyone knew, knew about it and nobody was using it. Why was that? Yeah, it's this, this game theory um, where everyone assumes that their enemy is, I guess, a bit cleverer, actually, at this stage than they, they think, which is weird because we started off thinking in reverse. There was this just ridiculously simple technique to defeat radar. It was simple enough that there was this mild panic in Whitehall when the Daily Mirror's cartoonist accidentally created it. He did a cartoon, there was this agent called Buck Ryan who did daring things. And in one of these daring things he was doing, he uh, came across the German invasion plans, which in involved the use of metal reflectors to dazzle our radar. And they sort of had to do this thing, a bit like when the crossword puzzles before D-Day famously gave away the names of all of the beaches. They thought, you know, what, what the hell's going on? But it was a simple enough technique. It was, if you drop little reflective strips of metal, they can look very rapidly like a massive air armada and you just can render the radar useless. And we created this. There was a physicist called Joan Curran who cut up these strips. They had to be half the wavelength of the radar you're going for. She cut them up on her kitchen table. They threw out a couple of bundles and they were astonishingly good at defeating our radar. And we were so scared that we thought, we can't use these because if we use these, they'll see the dropped window, the chaff, and they'll do exactly the same. And at the same time, the Germans had created something called Dupu, which was exactly the same. And they dropped it. And then Goering ordered it not be used lest the um, the RAF discover. So for several months, we were, we were stuck in this game theory of each thinking that it would be more useful to the opposition than it was to them until eventually we decided we were sufficiently on the offensive that we would we would rather use it. And so we did. And it was utterly devastating and it effectively destroyed the Kamhuba line as a defensive mechanism. Uh, much the worse for Hamburg. Yeah. Your, your book leads towards this great climax is D-Day. And it's kind of remarkable to me, which I hadn't, hadn't known at all, really how important what, Jones was doing was to the success of that operation. Can you explain how? Yeah, so they had, at the same time as the main fleet was going out, there was a another fleet, a decoy fleet. It's uh, you know, Churchill's great quote that the truth is so precious it should be so, surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. Well, this was the final lie. And by this stage, you know, the radio war was this vast operation. So Jones had been very much involved in the preparations for this, where what had been going on was they had been taking out all of the radar, or as much of the radar as they could, along the French coast. Um, it was 
So he was helping identify the sites. And it was a very costly operation, some tragically costly. And um, you're flying low and fast trying to hit these things. And they had to do the whole French coast. They couldn't just do Normandy because if we just do Normandy, they might get wind that Normandy is quite important. But they left just a few. And they left just a few largely because of this decoy fleet. And it would have looked to an eye like the most, you know, abs- absurd, ludicrous armada. It had a, a few ramshackle boats carrying barrage balloons to provide a big reflective radar signal. It had some of the countermeasures that we'd got by this stage, something called moonshine, which sent back, it pinged back a big signal. When it, when it was hit by radar, it sent back a really strong signal to make it look like more than it is. Above it, we had uh, bombers who'd been training to very slowly process. They'd go around in circles that very, very slowly moved at the speed of a fleet and they were dropping window to again make it look like this vast thing. And then it weighed anchor and it it played the sounds of a fleet weighing anchor. And of course, it was not weighing anchor at Normandy. It was uh, weighing anchor. There were a couple of captains of the Hague and Calais. And the idea was that it would just provide, as one said, an arrow on a map. You know, it wouldn't fool anyone for long. That night, they could have flown something over and said, well, look, this is clearly a decoy. But Again, this is where psychology came in. The, the idea was um, that there was a... what Once this appeared as an arrow on a campaign map on the night of D-Day, it's very hard to remove an arrow on a campaign map, and it would be enough to add confusion, and that does appear to be what it did. And speaking of confusion, there's one lovely detail I wanted to mention, I think this was just before this, but of how they found that they were able to kind of get inside the communications of the German radio operators and the Luftwaffe pilots themselves. <laughs> Tell us about that. It's just a lovely story. Yeah, this was... There, there are elements of farce of it. Um, so we, we started broadcasting orders. We had German speakers who could broadcast orders to German pilots. This was after window when everything was so confused and they were flying around trying to find the, the bomber stream. And so um, we started setting up these signals and, and there was lo- a lovely exchange that was recorded where the German radio broadcast said, do not be led astray by the enemy. You know, in the name of General Schmidt, I order all aircraft to castle. Uh, and then he swore. So then the RAF operator came in and said, the Englishman is now swearing, he said, you know, in German. <laughs> and then the German said, it is not the Englishman who's swearing, it is me. Uh, they're sort of plaintive, no, no, I'm the swearer. But then they introduced, the Luftwaffe switched to female controllers. And General Schmidt, you have this, this sort of lament from him, the use of women's voices proved to be futile as the enemy had the very same at his disposal. <laughs> and so we, we just started using, using women as well. And as Jones said, uh, confusion was immediately restored. <laughs> lovely figure. And now did Jones get his due. I mean, Alan Turing didn't. He did and he didn't. It's interesting. I, I begin this by um, pointing out that jo- so Jones's Wikipedia page, I, I know it's not necessarily the sole measure of a man, but it is you know, a bit over a thousand words. It's less than some dog who is a mascot of an armored, a US armoured force in the Second World War. He's one of those weird characters. You speak to people and they will say, They've never, ever heard of him. Or you'll speak to people and they will give you chapter and verse. He's definitely a cult hero. And in the 1970s, he had a very successful autobiography and and he had a TV series. But he doesn't see, he seems to have sort of 
been slightly f- forgotten, certainly more than he should have, because you know, he's not quite a Turing figure. He's not, I don't think anyone would claim he was as intelligent, but you know, that, that's quite a, it's quite a standard. Um, it's a high bar. But yeah, he was, he was far more of a player though. Yeah. He was privy to state secrets, to strategies, to all of these things. And he was someone at the, the centre of all sorts of things going on. And there's, Churchill said at the end of the war that he was, I'll, I'll find the, 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 the exact quote, he said that he was, he did far more, his magnificent prescience and comprehension did far more to save us from disaster than many who are glittering with trinkets. I should say after the war as well, there were some who felt that that Jones took far more credit for bits of the war than he deserved. And I think that's certainly true later in the war. The radio war became this absolutely mammoth exercise. But equally, at the beginning, it was him who thwarted the beans. It it, it was him who, who worked out what was going on. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. He was the guy leading the beans counter operation. And then, yeah, later on, other people became involved. Um, after the war, he was quite annoyed in that he'd spent a few years in military research before the war, and then he spent all this time in military research during the war, and he had no published papers, and he wanted an academic position. But he was competing for professorships alongside people who had something to show for themselves. And there's this lovely anecdote where in 1946, um, Churchill was up in Aberdeen, and then later on, Jones turned up in Aberdeen and got the job of professorship. And he asked the principal what had swung it. And he said, a friend of yours was here last week. And uh, Churchill was adamant that he, quote, simply must employ the man who broke the bloody beam. <laughs> well, a happy ending. <laughs> yes. Tom Ripple, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks a lot. <laughs>